1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What busyness is it of mine? Business <laughs> is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Well, there you go. There's a bright, happy, uplifting message for the morning. Actually, it's it's actually is really good news. We'll get there. I promise. Um, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Uh, our gracious Lord, uh, we, we're so thankful that um, in you our labor is not in vain. Uh, Lord, I am so counting on that promise. It's the only reason I'm willing to stand up here every week and bring the word of the Lord to these wonderful people is because I trust that my labor in you is not in vain, that you are accomplishing something every Sunday with us, every time your word is, is presented. And my responsibility, my duty is to not get in the way. So thank you for that great and tremendous promise, Lord. Remind me of that regularly. My labor in you is not in vain because you are the one who empowers it, who blesses it, and who brings it. Thank you for that. And Lord, this week, uh, our nation celebrates Thanksgiving. Um, in the traditional sense, there will be turkey and cranberries. There will be uh, gatherings and overeating and carbocomas and football, and all the normal things that come with uh, our Thanksgiving. And for many people in our world, they have things to be thankful for, um, but no one to be thankful to. And uh, Lord, we know that the universe doesn't care about us. If it was up to the universe, it would just kill us anyway. So there's no sense in being thankful to the universe for the great things that we have, for the tremendous liberty, and, and wealth, and comfort, and homes, and friends, and all of the things you've given us. Lord, Within the church, when we see these things, we know where, they're, where they came from, and we know who to be thankful to. And so, Lord, I pray that your body of Christ in, in America, especially since we're celebrating Thanksgiving, Lord, that we would be thankful to you because you have brought all these things to us. We live in an amazing time. We have so many blessings that, that are available to us that were not present with our grandparents or our great-grandparents. And, and so thank you, Lord. Thank you for the blessing of security. And relative peace and, uh, and a freedom to express ourselves and, and numerous ways to express ourselves and all the things that come with the, the blessings that you've given us. Lord, we want to offer thanks to you and, and not to just, in general, nameless forces in, in the universe or something like that. Lord, it, it is all from the hand of God that we receive these things, and to you we're most grateful. So thank you for that. And Lord, we're, we're grateful every Sunday when we gather together for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for your word, for your Holy Spirit, for all that you do in and through and among us. And Lord, as we now turn to your word, we count, to you, count on you continuing to do that. So be with us now. Help us to hear and to understand and be encouraged by what you have to say to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
there is a radio show called This American Life. I'm kind of proud to say it started on WBEZ in Chicago as just a radio program. And then it pick, got picked up by NPR and got syndicated. And now it's a podcast and all this other stuff. Uh, the premise of This American Life is um, it, the, their tagline they say at the beginning is they say, each week we choose a theme. Then anything can happen. This American Life is true stories that unfold like little movies for the radio. Personal stories with funny moments, big feelings, surprising plot twists, newsy stories that tell you or that try to capture what it's like to be alive right now. And that's exactly what it is, is, is they start with some theme. And the host, Ira Glass, does the introduction and sets the theme. And then he goes through in Act 1, and it's this story. In Act 2, it's this story. And some of the stories are just captivating, just really amazing. And some of them are like, well, that was kind of dorky, but whatever. You know, it's kind of a mixed bag. So I listened to it accidentally yesterday. I just flipped on the radio, and I heard the introduction to this week's This American Life. And I wanted to play it for you because the introduction, I think, really fits with this. But it's not going to be available until tonight. So I'm going to write to Mr. Glass and correct him on this. I needed that audio today, not next week. So I'll just try to encapsulate what I heard and, and uh, help you understand. The name of this week's episode is How I Learned to Shave. And the way it starts is Ira Glass is talking about his father. And he said, you know, his, what I heard when it first started is his father was going to show him how to shave. And the only way he could do it was like he was shaving himself. So he wrapped his arms around Ira and was shaving like he was shaving himself. And, and Ira said, this was really memorable to me because my father was kind and he was generous, but he wasn't really demonstrative. He wasn't very physical. He tended to prefer to be alone and, and he would be distant from people who could really help him, but not in a cruel or a mean way. It was just his, his way. And he said, and I kind of picked that up. I kind of prefer to be alone than to be with a group of people. And and so he, he kind of picks up this vibe from his father about how to relate to people. And he didn't do it on purpose. The subtitle of the episode is Things Our Dad Taught Us, Whether They Intended to or Not. And so that's what the stories are about. And as I heard that, I, I just kind of thought of my father. My father was very similar. He was never cruel, never mean, but he wasn't very close either. And, and so there was always this kind of thing that I picked up from him. And, and so I'm kind of like that, too. I, I tend to prefer to be alone in, in a big crowd. And that's really a challenge in ministry because I have to keep reminding myself, church is about people. <laughs> ministry is about people. Um, I can get caught in all the technical things or all the theological details and stuff. And it, I have to remember it's, it's people is what it's about. I think I picked that up from my dad, and, and not in the, I'm not trying to be negative or, or you know downplay him or anything, but there are things that we pick up without even thinking about it. Just they just kind of drift into our lives. We just see it and 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 begin to to embrace it that way. We kind of talked about that in Sunday school this morning. I said you you tend to believe the thing you listen to the most of. It just kind of seeps in. So this week when we looked at chapter when we look at chapter five. Really what's going on here is, is Paul is talking about influence and the power of influence. Um, so that's, that's how he's going to deal with this. He spent the first four chapters of the book saying, you guys should not be separating up. You should not be divided. You should not be lining up under different preachers and different pastors and different teachers and different spiritual leaders. You should be united in Christ. And now he says, okay, except in this case, you got to kick this guy out. And, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at what, why is he saying, why does he change his tone so rapidly and say we've got to kick some people out? Why is it necessary sometimes to separate and incredibly long and other times to separate? So let, let's take a look at what he has to say for us. He sa starts with, it is actually reported. Does that sound kind of familiar? That's how the first thing began. It is reported to me by Chloe's people that you people are dividing up. And now he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He's heard this coming from someone that a man has his father's wife. Now, it's not something as perverse, probably not something as perverse as his own natural birth mother. It's more than likely his father's um, new wife. So it would be a man has taken his stepmother. And, and that's what's being reported. That's what they're hearing. And notice the verb tense. It's not had, it is has. This is an ongoing relationship. It's still happening as far as Paul knows when he writes. Of man has his father's wife. That's horrible. That's what's being reported. And how bad is this? 
Paul says this is a kind of thing that is not tolerated even by the pagans. So when you look outside the church, you look at the world around you, they either, can, like, he's, like Paul says in, in Romans, they either have a law that confirms them or accuses them, goes back and forth, they just kind of stumble through and sometimes hit it. This is one of the places where the pagans tend to agree with God. That's wrong. And we know that's wrong. And so as the church is engaging this, they're seeing this man with his stepmother, and that's how bad it is. That's how terrible it is. But what really makes it worse is that it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. This is not quiet. This is not something hidden. This is not something tucked off in a corner. It's reported. And wherever Paul is, it is reported that far away. This is not the age of the Internet where somebody could tweet it. This has to go word, uh, uh, word of mouth. It has to get passed that way. So this is something that is that broad in the church, not a hidden sin, not a, a little thing that's tucked off in a corner. And it's the kind of thing that even the pagans wouldn't do. So this is how bad the sin is. This is, this is what the problem is. Now, what makes it even worse? We're going to keep ramping up the worse, worseness, the worseness. We're going to make it worse at every moment. In verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. Not only is this man sinning in the church, you're arrogant about it. You're bragging about it. You think this is something that's really important. Verse 6 says, your boasting is no good. So they're not just saying, well, we're going to tolerate this guy, or we'll get around to dealing with him sometime. They're going, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this great? We're all about love here. Love is love, and he can love his stepmother, even though the pagans don't like it and the law says no. They're bragging about it. They think this is something that they, they should be proud of, something boastful about. And he asked this rhetorical question, ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't this make you sad that this is happening? What is wrong with you people? Here's the problem is, is once, perhaps what they're thinking is, you know what, we're saved by grace, so you can do whatever you want. And if this man loves his mother or his stepmother, then, you know, this is just great. Isn't that wonderful? We're saved by grace. They're abusing it, and they're finding it as, as something that they would broadcast, that they would put on the outside of the building. <laughs> this, is, this is how proud we are. And so Paul says, look, this is, this is how you should respond. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You've got to cast this person out. Here's the reality. Sadly, within the church body, there are sinners. Now, somebody can sin within the church and repent and say, I, I, I did it. I don't want to do it. I didn't mean to do it. It was, it was wrong of me. I recognize that it was a horrible thing to do. I shouldn't have done it. You don't put that person out. Somebody who sins and then stumbles and does it again. And they're, they're just guilt-ridden over this. I, I just can't seem to escape that. I can't seem to get away from that sin. Please help me. That's not a person we put out. This is a person who goes, yeah, baby, <laughs> that's what I'm doing, and is proud of it. That's the kind of person that he says you have to put out of the church. The sad reality is it would be wonderful if everyone in the church was all perfect and we didn't sin. We would have just such harmony and grace. and It would just be wonderful. We're not there yet. That comes later. Where we're at now is in this mixed bag. And so what we have to do is when we approach this question of somebody sinning in the church is we have to handle it with care and humility. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too may be tempted. So he, he's saying that, that when we come to address, address somebody who's in sin in the church, we have to do it with care and humility. Isn't it much easier to just blast them? To just, hey, dude, get your act together. Instead of saying, no, you know, I'm, I'm weak as well. I, I stumble in these kind of things as well. And so he, he commands them that they have to address this issue within the church. So verse 3, he says, For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. When you gather together to do this, I am present in the spirit. What does that mean? He says it again in verse 4. When you've assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. What does that mean? I, I don't think it means that Paul is going to be a force ghost and show up or a holographic projection or something or, you know, zoom into their meeting or something. And I don't think it means, well, you know, I'm with your, I, I, I'm praying for you. I'm with you in, in spirit. I'm just right there 
standing beside you guys. I think it must mean something more than that. It's got to be something stronger than that. Because he says, I have already passed judgment on that person. So it's not terribly clear, and there's a lot of confusion what's going on. But I think what's happening here, I think what he means by I am with you in spirit, is I think he means as the Holy Spirit is present with him, dealing with this. I'm, I'm present with the Holy Spirit. I'm working with the Holy Spirit. How, how can he say that? Well, he's written this letter to them. And so in one way, this letter comes to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's inspired word. And so he's working with the Holy Spirit in that way. He, he's, he's with them as their founder and their father. Remember how he talked in an earlier chapter? He said, I laid the foundation. I put the cornerstone in place. And now we're building on it. I'm the founder of this church. I helped build it. He says, you had many spiritual guides, but not many fathers. I became a father to you in the gospel. So he's got this, this authority, this love, this connection to them. And so I think what he's saying when he says, I'm with you in the spirit, when my spirit is present with you, I think he's, he's speaking of something more than just his intentions. I think he, he's talking about his authority through the power of the Holy Spirit to work here. And so don't forget what Jesus said in Matthew 18 when you address this. And somebody has been confronted repeatedly and they refuse. He says, bring them before the church because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So how is Jesus there in the midst of them? He's there with us through the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when he says, my spirit is with you, when you deal with this man, I am there. I am, I'm, my spirit is going to be with you. It's more than good intentions. And it's not, you know, like a transporter beamed him in or something like that. So when you do this, when you get together and you um, address this person, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh or for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. What is going on there? You are to deliver this man to Satan so that for the destruction of the flesh. Uh, there's some debate over what does it mean, the destruction of the flesh? Some people actually think that means you should kill him. I think that's a horrible interpretation. There's another way to look at this. The flesh and the spirit, when Paul draws them together in, de in a distinction like that, usually what he means by the flesh is the sinful nature and the spirit is the renewed nature. So what he's saying is I want you to put him out of the church so that Satan can come and just accuse him and throw all his darts and everything at him so that his sinful nature will just magnified before him. He'll go, oh my gosh, this is horrible. What was I thinking? And that his spirit then will be saved. He will, he will flee from that. His, his sinful nature will be put away. We'll have to come back to that for a second because there's something in the next section that I think is going to really help us to understand what he means by put him out so that he is, his um, flesh might be destroyed, but his spirit might be saved. And that what comes next in verses uh, six through eight is the reason that we sometimes have to separate from people. Here's what he says. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is why you have to do it. Here's what's going on. Sometimes you'll hear people say that leaven in the Bible is a symbol of sin. It kind of is, but I don't think that incorporates everything that the Bible has to say about it. Sin fits in there, but it's not the fullness of it. Why do they say uh, leaven is a symbol of sin? Well, right here he says this, the leaven of malice and evil. So that must be that. Jesus himself taught his disciples. He said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This, they, they're sinful. They're denying the Christ. In the Passover, they would take all the yeast out of the house. They would find all the leaven and get it out of the house, sweep out the corners and get it all out, get the sin out before they had the celebration. The showbread that was put on the table in the temple that was changed out every week was unleavened bread. You wouldn't, it was there to represent Israel, and you wouldn't want Israel to be represented with their sin mixed in with them and stand before God that way. They wanted to be uh, pure and clean. And then Amos 4.5 kind of really puts a dot on that. There's a list of things that Israel's doing wrong in, in 4 and 5. And in 5, one of them is offering that which is leavened with the regular offerings. So the theory is leaven is a symbol of sin. 
what's wrong with that? Why did I say that it doesn't quite capture it all? Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't work that way. It doesn't have these, these secret code words that mean different things throughout the whole Bible. You have to read it in context. And what does the context say? And having said that, it is true that leaven often means leaven. When they're told to get the leaven out of the house, it means leaven. It's actually the leaven. It's the yeast that they would add. Um, but there's other times where it's used as a metaphor, like it is here, of something bigger. So what is it then? Um, what's going on here? Well, first of all, the idea that there was never any leaven offered on the altar is not true. There was one specific offering. It was, a, it was a, funnily enough, a offering of Thanksgiving. Perfect week to bring this up. And that specifically said you will offer leavened bread with it in Leviticus 7.13. So leavened bread could be offered. Here's the other one that you just tend to not think about. They had wine that they would pour out on the altar. They had, it was called the drink offering. How do you make wine? You mash up some grapes. You get the juice. You throw a little leaven in there. The, the yeast begins to eat the, grape, the sugars in the, the uh, grape juice and turn it into alcohol, and that's how you make wine. That was poured out on the altar regularly. So yeast is not necessarily a symbol of sin there. When you talk about Passover, yes, they got the yeast out of the house for Passover, but Passover wasn't about get the sin out of your, yourselves. When you go back to the original Passover event, the night of the Passover, it wasn't God saying, all right, you guys, you better get the sin out of your lives or I'm not taking you out of Egypt. So sweep, sweep that leaven out. Instead, he says in Exodus 12, 39, they were thrust out of Egypt so they couldn't wait for their bread to rise. It was the urgency of getting out of Egypt that made for non-risen non bread to get the leaven out. Then um, the one that I think kind of kills the whole leaven as a symbol of sin is um, there's two places at least in the gospel where Jesus says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The kingdom of God is not sin. So I think leaven means something different. So what does it mean then? Um, I've kind of taken all the wind out of it. What, what does it mean something, Tim? Come on. Well, it can include sin, but I think what leaven means is I think it's talking about influence. And that influence can be sin, or it can be like the kingdom of God coming in and slowly permeating and influencing the world in a way you can't regularly see. So then if that's true, then what was going on with the Passover? Why did they have to get the yeast out for the Passover? So for the night of the Passover, it was just because they had to run out in a hurry. They were going to get chased out of Egypt. But the Passover celebration, the following year when they celebrated Passover, why did they have to get the yeast out? What was going on with that? Well, I think what was going on with getting the yeast out to celebrate the Passover is they needed to get the influence of Egypt out of their lives. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. They, had, they knew nothing else. When you hear something over and over and over again, you tend to believe it. When you experience something on a regular, repeated basis over and over again, you can internalize that. And so these people had been slaves in Egypt. They were there for 400 years. I don't know how long of that was slavery, but a big chunk of it. And so all they ever knew was slavery. They, they were kind of hived off. They were isolated in their own little enclave because the, the Egyptians didn't care for shepherds, and they were shepherds by trade. But they still saw the world around them, the culture that they lived in, was all of these different gods. And what are these gods like? And there's the God of this and the God of that and the God of this and the God of that. So when Moses leads them out of Egypt, when he takes them out into the wilderness and they're wandering, the influence of Egypt is still in them. And so at one point they say, all right, let's fire Moses. We'll make a committee and they'll lead us back into Egypt because, yeah, we were slaves. But remember the leeks and onions. It was good food. We ate well. Uh, let's go back and do that. And then when they get to Mount Sinai and they meet God and he speaks from the mountain, he announces the Ten Commandments and the mountain is shaking and trumpets are blasting and they're all terrified. And they say, Moses, you go talk to him. We're going to die if he keeps speaking. So Moses says, okay, and he goes on up the mountain. Forty days later, they're like, we don't know what happened to this guy. Hey, Mo hey Aaron, make us some gods. And so he makes them gods like they had in Egypt, two golden calves. 
And Aaron announces, these are the gods that let you out of Egypt. So Moses looks at this and he goes, we have a problem, you guys. You've still got the stench of of, uh, Egypt on you. You think you're slaves. You're not slaves. That's why I think the end of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph. It's so detailed. Because what it says is, Egypt, you came, Israel, you came into Egypt not as slaves, not as a defeated people. You came in as celebrated guests of the second most powerful king or the second most powerful man in all the kingdom. You're not slaves. And then he says, and your God, your God is not like those Egyptian gods. That's why I think the beginning of the book of Genesis, he says, you know, you know how you had, they had the God of the, uh, the sun and the moon? God made those. You know how, how they had the God of the harvest? God spoke and it sprang up. Your God is greater than all those Egyptian gods. He's trying to get that out of them. So I think that's the symbol that they see of, of the yeast being removed from the house in the Passover is, remember that you were there and you've been set free from that. Sweep that out. Get rid of that. So what's that got to do with this? Well, I think what Paul says here is when he says that we, we need to be the, un, the new yeast, the new bread, not leavened, is he's saying, There's sin in your midst. And that sin can have that influential power over you. It can influence you in ways you won't even notice. I mean, think about this, right? So a man with his stepmother, even to the pagans, was icky. That's gross. So these these new believing Corinthians, do you think that they just went immediately went, oh, this is great. There was an inherent ick factor already built in. Ew. But the problem with relying only on an ick factor is eventually it goes from icky to a perverse curiosity to an actual delight in if you're not watching it. So the ick factor is only going to keep them for so long. So they went from ick to, well, just, you know, that's the way he is, to eventually going, well, this is great. Isn't this wonderful? To boasting about it. You guys should come to our church because he has his mother-in-law or his stepmother. It, It went that slowly. That was the influence of the sin in their midst as it eventually began to spread and change their attitude. Now, it wasn't like the sin spread, like all of a sudden there's another guy in the congregation who goes, you know, I never could stand my stepmother. I'm kind of glad my dad's dead because now I don't have to face her. But suddenly, you know, he's got to, I need to go find her. (laughs) We need to move in together. This is great. That wasn't what was happening. It wasn't that particular sin. It wasn't that one sin that was in danger of spreading. It was this idea of we're going to tolerate this sin then we're going to celebrate this sin, and then we're going to brag about this sin. And so what we'll see, especially in the next section, is there's a list of other sins that will creep in. So this is that leaven that had to be cast out. This is the leaven that had to be removed because there's a danger of it spreading, a danger of spreading toleration of sin. So what does this have to do then with throw him out so that he's turned over to Satan so that his, his uh, sinful nature may be destroyed. How does that tie in? Well, we have to go back real briefly and remember the story of the Exodus. So let me sum it up really quick for you. Tell it in brief. Israel has been in Egypt for a long time. Their cries for mercy rise up to God, and he says, it's time. I'm going to deliver them. And he sends them Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Moses keeps saying no. I mean, Pharaoh keeps saying no. And so there's one plague after another plague after another plague after another plague. So nine plagues come. And then there's the 10th plague. And this is the worst. And the the, the nature of this plague is the firstborn of everybody. Pharaoh down to the handmaiden and all the animals, the firstborn male is going to die throughout the entire land. Now, the first three plagues affected Israel. The next six did not. This one has the potential of affecting them. And so what does God say? He says, there's a way for you to escape this judgment. He says, you get to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep uh, sheep or from the goats, and you should keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lamb at twilight. So he says, go to your flocks and find a one-year-old male lamb, either goat or sheep, doesn't matter, Find the one that's perfect, no deformities, no scars, um, no, uh, it's not deaf, it's not lame or anything like that. Find the perfect one, and then you take it home. And at twilight, you're going to kill this lamb. 
And when you do, I want you to keep some of the blood. And you, you take some of that blood and you take hyssop. Hyssop was just a small little branch. It was kind of wispy. And you mix it in there and you go to your door and you rub it on the doorpost, the sides and across the top. You wipe this blood on that door. And then you gather everybody inside that house. You come in. And what you do is you take that lamb and you roast it. Don't boil it. Don't cook it any other way. Don't eat it raw. Roast it. And once you've roasted it, you take some bitter herbs and you eat in haste. And while you're in the house, while you're eating this meal, I'm going to come through Egypt. And he refers to the destroyer coming. And I'm going to judge Egypt. I'm going to judge their gods. I'm going to judge everybody. And this judgment's going to fall on everyone. And when I come to your door and I see the blood, then I'm going to pass over your house. That's how it got the name Passover. And so they pa God says he will pass over the house. He won't enter in and kill them. So the safety is being under the blood of the lamb. You have to be under the blood. Otherwise, judgment is coming. So imagine a man hears the story, and he's out getting the lamb, and he's looking, and he's like, ah, sunset's coming. At midnight, God's going to come and destroy us. i got to hurry up and get this done. He knows there's this pending judgment, just this, this feeling. There's, there's nothing tangible. It's not like the horizon turns red and fire comes down from heaven or anything. It's just he's been told. You get under the blood now. And so he, he brings that, that lamb back, and he gathers his family, and, and they're huddling in the house, and they're standing under the blood to avoid what is about to come. And what came the next morning was terrible. The cry went up as people went out and found their firstborn dead. It was horrendous. It was a terrible thing. So this ties back to cast this man out, hand him over to Satan for the, the destruction of his flesh and the salvation of his soul. What he's saying is, you're under the blood of the lamb. Push this man out the door. He is not behaving. He is not living in accordance with the lamb that has been slain. He is doing something counter to that. So you push him out the door. He's no longer under the blood of Christ. He is exposed. And so what, what I think Paul is hoping will happen is this man will go, oh, my gosh, what am I doing out here? I, 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 what am I thinking? I am, I am in danger. I could be killed. This is, this is terrible. And then he's got Satan whispering in his ear, yeah, you're that bad. You know, you're really that horrible. God's not going to save you. It's too late. Look what you already did. You're beyond salvation, man. You just probably ought to end it. It's over. Oh, just indulge yourself. You know, there's probably more you could do. It's too late. You're sunk. You got Satan nattering in his ear. And the hope is he knows enough. He has enough gospel in him to go, I need to put that away. I need to return to the house. I need to get under the blood again so that his flesh, his sinful nature will die and that he will flee to the safety because there is judgment coming. That's why Paul says that he will be saved in the day of the Lord. He refers to that day, that terrible day when God comes and judges everybody. How are you going to escape? How are you going to get away with it? How are you going to, all those little foibles you've, you've done, all those little things you've, you've accidentally said or thought or felt, what are you going to do in the day of judgment? You're going to stand under the blood and go, Lord, this is what you told me to do. And I'm trusting that you're going to honor that. We stand under the blood of Christ. So for this man to take his, his mother-in-law or his, his stepmother to, to so flagrantly disobey what even the pagans know is wrong, that means you've stepped outside of it. That's why he says you have to do that. You have to get under the blood. You have to do that. That Passover is the most important. And here's the greatest sentence in the entire chapter. Verse 7, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the, the, the blood under which we stand. He is the one who will avert the destroyer from coming into our house and destroying us. Our Passover has been, has been uh, slain. So we celebrate Passover regularly. That's why he says celebrate the feast, not with the, the leaven of, of evil and malice, that influence of that, that wickedness that could come in, but with this unleavened bread that was pictured in the Pentecost, having those influences put out, that unleavened bread of sincerity and faith, because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. We are saved by grace through faith, by standing underneath that blood. 
And when you act as if you are not, when you act as if that means you can do anything you want, when you think that that means God has no say over my life anymore, that's when you've been pushed outside the door. Wake up. Don't stand out there. There's a day coming. This, this, this threat is looming, and it's coming in quick. Get back under the blood. That's the promise. So this is why he's, he uses the illustration of the Passover. Um, one of our ex-members, uh, she moved, didn't leave in, in, in a bad thing, just moved away, was out at Antelope Valley College, and somebody came up to her and started sharing the quote-unquote gospel with her and said, did you know that there is a tremendous blessing for Christians who keep the Passover? And she came to me, and she's like, Pastor Tim, what? <laughs> I had never heard this before. And I said, well, well, yeah, that's true, but it depends on what they mean by Passover. And she said, well, they meant the Passover, the, the Seder meal. And I was like, well, no, we celebrate the Passover every month when we do the Lord's Supper. And she was like, oh, cool, okay. So I, was, I remember these folks, and I was like, I would love to meet these people. They came to my door. They came and knocked on my door. So I was like, dudes, let's talk. And they told me that Jesus came back, that he is a, a middle-aged Korean woman. Um, and I was like, oh, I guarantee he did not come back. And they went, what do you mean? I was like, I would know about it. What? I said, I would know if he came back. And they were just like flabbergasted. I said, everybody would know. When he comes back, it will flash across the sky like lightning. There will be a trumpet blast. There will be angels shout. Nobody will miss it when Jesus returns. So I would know about it. He's not back. And I said, do, do you guys, what do you guys think about the Passover? And they told me that. I was like, okay. We have the Passover all the time. We celebrate all the feasts in Christ. And they, they were just kind of wrestling back and forth. It was a wonderful discussion, but it was really helpful to, to kind of focus you again and go, our Passover has been slain. We have a Passover lamb. It, God didn't just go, yeah, yeah, forget that. That was so central to Israel's identity. As Moses is telling the story in, in Exodus, as he's going through and explaining the story, he starts mixing in how they will observe it going into the future because it is so central to them. That was this huge tender, uh, uh, center post in their, their understanding of who they were. And for us, it gets even bigger because it's Jesus Christ. So that's the picture here is, is we have salvation. We have security in Christ. When the destroyer comes, when judgment comes, we're standing under the blood because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So then Paul goes on, and, and this is the, the causes of when you need to separate them. He says uh, in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter previously. He'd, he'd written, it, written them before. Remember I said at the beginning there's this exchange going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. Chloe reports to him. He writes to them. They write back. Now he's writing one more time. So the previous letter that he'd written, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. Um, because sex is such a powerful force in human nature. It, it is such a strong thing in human nature that God doesn't say it's evil, don't ever do it. It's icky. That's kind of the Victorian approach. Instead, what he says is, let me put parameters on this for you. There's a way to experience this in a healthy and a proper way within the bounds of a covenant marriage, a commitment between two people, because this thing is so strong, if it's not done within a, a bond of two people, it can lead to disaster. So don't associate with sexually immoral people. These people who are having sex with anybody and anything, anytime, anywhere, the sexual drive in humanity is so strong it can lead you astray. It, it can really draw you into a bad place. <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I just read a, a news story this morning uh, Pornhub is the, one of the biggest porn sites on the internet. A guy who is a rabbi, an ordained rabbi, just bought it. And, and people were like, what? And he says, I think we can use it for a force for good. Uh, good luck with that one. <laughs> I, I don't think it works that way. Sex is too powerful to use it in that kind of a setting as a force for good. You might be able to make it maybe less evil, but it ain't going to be good, that's for sure. So don't hang out with sexually immoral people. And so the Corinthians got that, and they went, oh, good, then we don't hang around with anybody because the world is all full of sexually immoral people. And he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. Um, it, it, you, you can't do that. The world, since sex is such a universal, strong power within humanity, the people in the world who don't believe in God use and abuse it. 
And it's everywhere. It's just everywhere. So you, he's saying you can't not hang around with them. You'd have to leave the world. You'd have to jetpack out of here. So let's all go to Mars, and we'll leave all the sinners here, right? Yeah, too bad. The, the sinners are coming to Mars with you. They're a little too close. So he says, don't hang around with those kind of people, not meaning those in the world. That would, be, that would be too bad. That would be impossible. But he goes beyond this. This is where he goes beyond the initial icky factor of man with his, his stepmother and broadens it. There's more to it than that. Not only is it the sexually immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to leave the world. The world is full of people like this. Sexually immoral, greedy, in for the money, swindlers, too lazy to work, want to cheat other people out of theirs, and idolaters, they will worship anything. We mentioned that in Sunday School this morning, talking about the Antichrist. And I quoted G.K. Chesterton, who said, when, we, when man stops believing in God, it doesn't mean he stops believing. It means he'll believe in anything. So these idolaters, they don't believe in the true God, and so they'll believe in anything. They'll believe any God that, that they could come up with. There was a Roman God of uh, door frames. A God of door frames. Don't ask me. I don't know how you worship him. I guess go through a door or something. So Paul is saying, if, if those are the kind of people you don't want to hang around with, you have to jetpack out of the world. That's not what I mean. What I mean is um, not to associate with, this is verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So if they bear the name of brother, the, the translation that AJ read said brother or sister. And, and that's a fair translation. The word is adelphos. It means brother, but it includes brother and sister. It's kind of a, a, an umbrella term that way. So he says, if they bear the name brother, if they are a member of the church, if they claim to be a Christian and they're like that, then don't hang around with them. Don't have anything to do with them. If they're greedy, we all have a, a bit of greed in us. There's always something that you just want. Um, Dan told a great story about a guy staring at a picture of a yellow Ferrari and then couldn't not have a yellow Ferrari. He just wanted that so bad. So we all have this, this tinge of greed in us, but when greed dominates, when it is the thing you're known for, um, this person is so tight with their money, they are so greedy, um, that is what they're known for. Don't hang around with that kind of person. Idolatry in the church. This is the one that blows my mind. These idolaters in the church, really? Yeah, when we get to chapter 11, Paul's going to say it again. He's going to warn them. He says, this, this story of the Exodus, that was written so you wouldn't be tricked into idolatry. It is a live danger for us. It's not a danger that we're going to go out and worship a piece of carved wood. That's, that, our idols are far too sophisticated for that these days. They're not so crass as to be little metal things on the shelf. They're anything else. There are all kinds of other things that will give you a sense of power in the world, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of place. Don't hang around with somebody who's like that, who is constantly seeking power and position and, and recognition. Reviling. What does reviling mean? Have you ever been a reviler? It's insulting, verbal abuse. Boy, this one is live. This is something that is really dangerous in our day. A reviler is someone who is insulting, cutting down, bitter, mean towards other people. Man, just about any commentator on television is like that anymore. Left or right, it doesn't matter. They're all pretty ugly about it. They can be pretty vicious. But social media just amplifies that and puts the amplification in your hand, and you can be as mean and vile and reviling as you want, too. There's a real danger of that. If somebody is known as that kind of person, he says, don't be associated with them. A drunkard. Not just occasional drinking, but drinking to excess regularly, often, intentionally. Um, and it, the drunkard thing, it's, it's a complicated issue because there can be people who are just genetically predisposed to alcoholism. And with that kind of a person, you don't just say, oh, you're drunk, cut them off. You want to try to help them and work through it. But a person who just is, you know, delights in being drunk all the time, just drinks for, for no good reason. Or it could be a chemical addiction. It could go beyond uh, drunkenness. It could be um, drug abuse or smoking marijuana all the time, just chronically stoned. Um, because now it's legal, which is, I think, a really bad idea. They're beginning to find out that, you know, when we did that with tobacco, light it up and, and suck the, the uh, smoke into your lungs, that was bad for your lungs. <laughs> Go figure, marijuana does that too. Putting smoke into your lungs. Who, who would have thought of that? 
So this drunkard, this person who is known for abuse of those kind of things, and swindlers. Anybody want to sign up to be a swindler's best friend? Guess what they're going to do to you? This is tragic. I have, I've seen and heard stories of swindlers coming into the church because we're easy targets. We're such generous and kind people. So if we have those kind of people, that's the one. He says, if they bear the name of Christ, this is the kind of person you don't hang around with. This is the kind of person you chase out. Why? Because the sexual sin is bad. These other sins are as equally as contagious. And so if you just let it go, if you just pass it over and go, ah, you know, that's just the way they are. It's okay. It won't be too long until you go from, I don't like it, to, well, you know, we tolerate it, to, isn't that great? You know, sure, he's a swindler, but he made me a lot of money. You know, it's fine. It, it, that's the power of sin. That's how sin works. So verse 12, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those who inside the church whom you judge? God judges the outsider. So Paul is looking and saying, look, I'm not going to judge the world. I'm not going to judge the outsiders. They're doing what they naturally are going to do. Human nature, since the fall, is bent to do these kind of things. Perverse nature, the, the swindlers, idolaters, all that stuff. That's just the way they are. I'm not going to judge them. What I'm going to do is preach the gospel to them. I'm going to invite them in and draw them in and say, come to find out that life is more than this. There is something better than that. So Paul says, I'm not, I'm not judging the outsider, but I am judging the church. You can be judged within the church. As a matter of fact, we're charged to do that. that. That's what we're supposed to do is to judge each other. Now, don't forget Colossians or Galatians 6.1. If a brother is caught in sin, correct him, you who are spiritual. So there are some of you who should not be correcting their brother. You're not spiritual enough. You who are spiritual, with humility and grace, then you correct your brothers. But we need to be watching and keeping an eye out on each other. That's, that's part of being in the church because we don't want to tolerate the sin. We don't want it to spread. And then in verse 13, because God judges those who are outside. That's why I said when, they, when he talks about putting this person out of the church at the beginning and exposing them to that, this is the judgment. This is that was pictured in, in the Passover is the judgment is coming. It's God who judges those who are outside. So if somebody is acting like an outsider but claiming to be inside, you need to put them outside so they can see what's coming. There is a day coming when God will judge the world. When, brother and sister, you will stand before him. And your only answer is, I'm with Jesus. Not relying on, I did enough good. If you, it, Lord, if you just balance my good and my bad. Did, did, have you seen how much I tithe? Um, did you see how many hours I spent at church? Those things, those don't count. There's enough bad to outweigh all of it. The answer is, Lord, I've got no answer except I'm standing under the blood. That's all I got. God judges the outsiders. And so this whole section ends with this admonition again. Purge the evil person from among you. It's quoted a couple of times in the New Testament. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, we are called to make disciples. We are called to lead people to Christ. We are called to, to take somebody who's a young baby Christian and help them grow up. So you got to be careful with this one. The judgment of, is this an evil person or is just this an imp immature Christian? Uh, uh, somebody who hasn't grown enough in grace to, to begin to exhibit all of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, that's a difficult call, and, and it takes patience and kindness and, and mercy and long-suffering, and be ready to be burned. Be prepared to lose. Because you always, always have the hope of, God might be working in this person. But then there is the other person, hard-hearted thinks they're always right. What, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me how I'm supposed to live? I, I, I know how to read the Bible. I read it. I know what, that I can do this and not listen to anybody else. And then begins to inform other people and try to influence other people to follow them. That's the evil person. That's the person we have to put down. But do it with care. Uh, Paul is, is, notice Paul says, he doesn't say just cut the guy off right now. He says, when the church assembles, when you're assembled in the name of Christ, by the way, congregational rule, anybody? When the church assembles, the church is the one who puts them out. He doesn't say when your elders assemble, go do it. This is, I think, an example of congregational rule, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll set that aside for now. 
Instead, you gather together in the name of Christ and the Holy Spirit is with you. And Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered together to exercise church discipline, there I am in the midst of them. And then Paul says, I am with you. He's counting on all of this community of the saints and of the spirit and of God himself working in this so that you exercise church discipline with care and precision and grace and long suffering. But in the end, purge the evil person from you. So again, chapters one through four, don't be divided. Stop being divided over this stuff and thinking you're better than anybody else. And then chapter five, now put this person out of the church. There is a time to divide. There is a way to divide, but it's not based on who baptized me or who I think is a better teacher or something like that. It is put the evil person out. So I think it's really instructive that Paul puts those two together in his letter right next to each other. There's a time to, and there's a time to, and you can't not do it. Purge the leaven, get the leaven out. Our, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let's pray. I got to pray about this real quick. Uh, Lord, um, we have had so much peace and harmony in this, in this body for 10, 15 years. Uh, there have been troubles in the past, but Lord, we have uh, enjoyed the peace that you've given us. And Lord, we just ask, please let it continue. I pray that the brothers and sisters, the, the people that, that gather and worship with us that are part of this body would be encouraging each other daily to live more like Christ, to follow you, to put their trust more in you and less in themselves. But Lord, if the day comes where we need to put somebody out, when somebody is, is disruptive and in danger of spreading their sin throughout the, the church and in danger of helping the church think that sin's not that big of a deal, Lord, would you enable all of us, not just the elders, but the whole congregation, that we would gather together and uniformly turn that person over to Satan for the salvation of their soul on the day of the Lord. Lord, give us grace. We appreciate the grace that we've experienced so far. Spare us from that person coming in. But if they do, if the wolf shows up, help us to find him and shoot him. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.